This is the final week of Jesus' life in Mark's gospel. And so the stakes are really high. In last Sunday's passage, we saw Jesus cause an enormous scene in the temple, flipping over tables and rebuking temple leadership. In today's passage, it's the very next day. And Jesus has returned to the temple to pick a fight. A fight that would lead directly to his death. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to Mark chapter 11. And we'll look at verses 27 of chapter 11 through chapter 12, verse 12. If you don't have your Bible with you, the verses will be on the screen behind me. Mark chapter 11, verse 27. They arrived again in Jerusalem. And while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? They asked. And who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism. Was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they feared the people. For everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Chapter 12, verse 1. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of Scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him, because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away.
This is God's word. So Jesus is not a trained rabbi. He didn't graduate from Bible college or Harvard or Yale. And so Jesus walking into the temple, flipping over the tables, causing this enormous scene and telling everyone that the temple belonged to him. Well, that lit a fire of anger in the Jewish leadership. And so in this text, they confront Jesus directly. Who are you to say and do these things? By what authority are you acting like this? And Jesus gives them three responses. He gives them a claim, a threat, and a promise. A claim, a threat, and a promise. Number one in your outline, in your bulletin, is the claim. The claim. What claim is Jesus making? Well, first of all, let's look at who are these chief priests, teachers of the law, and elders that confront Jesus? Who are these people? They were a subset of a group called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin were a group of 71 men who essentially controlled all of Israel. That's who the Sanhedrin were. And at the height of the most important week in Israel, Passover week, Jesus starts the week off by causing an enormous disturbance in the temple. Obviously, this got the attention of the Sanhedrin. And so they confront Jesus and say, show us your papers. Show us your papers. Show us your credentials. They're saying to Jesus, hey, you know what, buddy? It's fine if you want to act like a big dog out in the wilderness, out in the sticks with all your little band of followers. That's fine. You, if you want to stay out in the woods and act like that. But who are you to come here? And do that into our house and flip over tables and rebuke the leadership. Who do you think you are? Now, it's important to know that the temple was no small operation. <laughs> the temple was the very heart and soul of Israel. And it was enormous. The temple covered 35 acres one historian says that just during Passover week, there would be over 200,000 doves sold in the temple in one week alone. Not to mention all of the other sacrificial animals sold there. This was the epicenter of Jewish life and spirituality. This is the special place where Yahweh meets with his people. And Jesus comes into this holiest place during the holiest week and says, this is all garbage. It's garbage. The whole thing is. Oh, everything looks great on the outside, but on the inside, it's disgusting and corrupt. Now, it's hard for us to grasp just how infuriating this would be to the Sanhedrin. And so, when they question Jesus and confront him, 
about his authority, Jesus responds with a question of his own. I love when Jesus does that. He does that a lot, actually. <laughs> he answers a question with a better question. I love when he does that. He does it right here. Let's look at verses 28 and 29. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you, or you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Verse 30. He says, John's baptism. Was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. Now, this question from Jesus at first seems like a non sequitur, right? Like, what does John the Baptist have to do with any of this? <laughs> but this is actually pure genius from Jesus. This is a genius question. You see, virtually all of Israel loved and respected John the Baptist. They did and considered him a true prophet of Yahweh. And so what is Jesus saying then? He's saying, you guys have a problem with me? Guess who baptized me? John the Baptist did. John the Baptist said he wasn't even worthy enough to tie my shoes. So if you got a problem with me, you got a problem with John the Baptist. And the Sanhedrin immediately recognized the trap Jesus put them in. Look at verses 31 through 33. They discussed it among themselves and said, well, if we say from heaven, he will ask, well, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, dot, 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 <laughs> they feared the people, for everyone held that John was a prophet. So the answer, Jesus, we don't know. We don't know. Then Jesus takes things one step further. He then tells the Sanhedrin a parable about a vineyard, a vineyard owner and vineyard tenants. And with this parable, Jesus is saying, my baptism is like the parable of the vineyard. He's saying, God is my father. I am the father's son and the vineyard is mine. The vineyard belongs to me. The temple, the people, the sacrifices, the land, the prophets, the world, it's all mine. It's all mine. Therefore, I have not come for you to question my authority. I have come to question yours. This is my temple. You work for me, is the point of the parable. I hope you see how astonishing and yet very clear this claim is. Very clear. For the Muslims and the skeptics out there who say that Jesus never actually claimed to be God, they must have never read Mark 11 and 12. They must have never read it. Jesus here is claiming ultimate authority. Ultimate authority. He is claiming to be Yahweh's son. 
He's saying, I am the incarnate authority of the universe. I am the one true king. And every other authority in the world and the universe must bow to me. So let's get rid of the goofy idea that Jesus was just a good moral teacher or just a wise sage. Good moral teachers, folks, don't say things like this. <laughs> they don't make these kinds of claims. No. Jesus was either completely out of his mind insane, or he was who he claimed to be, God in the flesh. That's the claim. Number two in your outline. Let's look at the threat. The threat. Now, the Sanhedrin interpreted Jesus' claim as a threat against them. So the claim and the threat are the same thing. They interpreted this claim as a threat, and they interpreted correctly. They interpreted correctly. Look at chapter 12, verse 12. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. And so the Sanhedrin responded to Jesus' claim by conspiring to kill him. That's how they responded. Why did they respond that way? Because that's what all of us do to Jesus. <laughs> that is the natural human response to Jesus' authority. You see, Jesus' claim to ultimate authority isn't only a threat to the Sanhedrin. It's a threat to you and me, too. It's a threat to our authority. <laughs> if Jesus is in control, that means I'm not in control. <laughs> and that's a problem. And Jesus helps us see this truth in verses 10 and 11. He says, haven't you read this passage of Scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Sanhedrin are not the only ones who rejected Jesus. You and I did, too. But he says the cornerstone was rejected. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. What is he talking about? What is a cornerstone? Well, a cornerstone is the largest, strongest, and most expensive stone in any ancient structure. Catherine and I have been to Israel about, what, five years ago, six years ago, um, and we got to see the cornerstone of this temple in Israel, in Jerusalem. And this cornerstone is massive. It's like ridiculously huge. Uh, it, the stone itself is probably as big as this room. It's a massive stone. Uh, the guide we had said it weighs more than two army tanks. This is a massive stone. And it is of the utmost importance. The cornerstone is. Why? Well, because the cornerstone gives the shape and the character of the building. Okay? If the angles of the cornerstone are off, then the angles of the building will be off. If the cornerstone is weak, the building will be weak. Everything hinges on the cornerstone. And Jesus is telling us that this is how our hearts work. It's not just how ancient buildings work. 
It's how the human heart works too. You see, every person in this room and every person on this planet has made something their cornerstone. Something. Something that you would say, this is what gives my life meaning. This is what defines me. This is my cornerstone. This thing or person sets the shape of my life. Everybody's got one. Everybody. And Jesus is saying that anything you choose to be your cornerstone, if it isn't him, if it isn't Jesus himself, then the cornerstone will eventually collapse along with everything else you've built on top of it. It will not last. Now, for some of you, maybe your cornerstone is your career. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your intelligence. Maybe it's your good looks. Maybe it's your talent. Maybe it's your wealth. I mean, it could be all kind of different things. But whatever it is, it won't be strong enough to hold your life up. Not for long. You are headed for a big collapse. Now, why didn't the Sanhedrin give an answer to Jesus in verse 32? Why couldn't they give him an answer? Well, it actually says why they couldn't. You know that little dot, dot, dot there? Why couldn't they give the answer? It says right here. Because they were, quote, afraid of the crowds. They were afraid of the crowds. Which tells us what? Well, it's a pretty big clue. A pretty big clue that the Sanhedrin had built their identities on the acclaim of the crowds. They made human approval their cornerstone. They loved the power and influence that the crowds gave them. And so they couldn't have the crowds thinking less of them. And Jesus' claim, and Jesus' question here in our text, he put their cornerstone in jeopardy. He's calling out their cornerstone. And so they responded the same way you and I do when Jesus threatens our cornerstone. We conspire to be rid of him. We conspire to be rid of him. We rebel against his claim of ultimate authority. And that is the very definition of sin. That is what sin is. I see all the time on Twitter and the people I talk to, like, well, what is sin? People are like, you know, Christianity, Jesus, we always talk about sin. What is sin? This is what sin is. Every sin is at bottom a rebellion against Jesus' authority. That's what sin is. It is replacing Jesus on the throne of your life. It is you calling the shots. You becoming king of your life. In thousands of different ways. That is what sin is. Every sin at bottom is a rebellion against the one true king. Now, if Jesus is our ultimate authority, then that means Jesus is also our ultimate threat. He is our ultimate threat. Why? Because we want to be our own God. <laughs> we want to be our own king. 
we want to call the shots. And that's why Paul writes in Romans chapter 8 that all of our hearts are murderous toward God. Murderous toward God. So, what do we do? What do we do if Paul is right and Jesus is right? That we can't stand his authority. We can't stand his kingship and our hearts are murderous towards him. If all of our hearts are dead set against God, how then can any of us be reconciled to God? Shouldn't we all rightfully bear the full force of God's wrath? Since we have marched in the devil's army every second of every day of our lives, shouldn't we bear the full force of the Father's wrath? That leads us to point number three in your outline. The promise. The promise. Now, when you first read this parable, doesn't it seem that the owner of the vineyard is stupid? <laughs> I mean, doesn't it? <laughs> he keeps sending his servants to check on the vineyard and they keep beating the servants and killing them. And he's like, well, I guess I'll send another one. Maybe it'll be better this time. <laughs> just keep sending the servants. And then he does the unthinkable. And he says, well, if they've beaten and killed all the other folks, I guess I'll send my son. Maybe they won't beat and kill him. I mean, what? <laughs> Why would he send his only son into a vineyard where everyone else he's saying has been beaten or killed. Is he dumb? Is he callous? No, he's not. You see, as we continue reading Mark's gospel, we see that this was the Father's plan all along. Before the universe began, this was the plan. We see that the Father and the Son have been co-conspirators from eternity past to forgive and redeem rebellious men. The plan was for the Son, the true King, to come to Jerusalem, not to take up a crown of gold, but to take up a crown of thorns. The plan was for the son not to wear the royal robes, but to be stripped naked. The plan was for him not to be celebrated, but to be mocked, laughed at, and spit upon. The plan was for Jesus to be cast out of the vineyard and crucified so that you and me could be brought into the vineyard and enjoy its pleasures forever. 
Jesus, the one true king, had all authority in the universe, and he used that authority not to trample you, but to be trampled for you in your place, for your sins and for my sins. This was the plan all along. Why? Why was this the plan? How? How could this be the plan that the father would send his only son to be beaten and to be killed? Because the father is both perfectly loving and yet perfectly just. He is both. And justice must be served. It must be. Sin must be punished. Rebellion must be punished. And so, God the Father does indeed do just that. Every sin of every person will be punished in one of two places. In one of two places. Either in hell or at Calvary. Those are the two places. In hell or at Calvary. But in those two places, all sin will be dealt with. All evil and rebellion will be vanquished. Either in hell or at Calvary. And you say, well... How do I keep from having my sins punished in hell? You believe in the Father's Son. That's what you do. You believe in the Father's Son. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. You believe in the Son, who because of His great love the Father sent to take your punishment for you. You believe that He took hell for you at Calvary. You believe that He stood condemned so that you could run free. You believe that Jesus took your place on the cross. You believe that he bore God's wrath so that you could get God's peace. And you believe that the son is not dead anymore. But on the third day after he was crucified, he rose again in total victory over hell and sin and death. And you believe that he is right now ruling and reigning over all things at his father's right hand. Do you believe? Do you believe that? If you believe that, then every one of your sins has already been paid for. It's already been punished. It's already been dealt with. Your past sins, your present sins, your future sins are dead. They're over. They're done. The Father removed your sins from you and placed your sins on His precious Son. And when Jesus was nailed to the cross, 
your sins were nailed to the cross. This is our glorious gospel. I hope you know that. This is our wondrous Christian gospel. It is not a call for us to do better or try harder. It is simply a call to believe. Believe in the Father's Son and what He has done for us. And the nanosecond you believe in the Son, baby, the nanosecond you believe, you become part of the family. <laughs> you become part of the family, the family of God. And this is Jesus' promise to us. That he has paid the debt you owed. To bring you from the outside into the family. To turn his enemies into his children. He has done it by grace and grace alone. Think about when the disciples came to Jesus and they asked Jesus to teach them how to pray. Did Jesus say, fellas, begin your prayer by saying, oh, most benevolent king. Is that what he said? Or, oh, most worthy landlord. No. Or, dear boss. Is that what he said? No. How did Jesus say we should begin our prayers? Our Father, our Father. No other religion talks like this. No other religion makes this claim that we could, we could say to God Almighty, our Father. <laughs> I hope you see how incredible that is, <laughs> especially in light of today's parable. Do you see what this means? It means that the Father's vineyard is yours. It's yours. You are now the heir alongside the Son. You are seated on a throne right next to Jesus. And what He has, you have. What He gets, you get. He gets the vineyard. And so do you. He inherits all things. And so do you. God's son was treated like God's enemy. So that you, God's enemy, could become his son or his daughter. And now everything the father has is yours. Everything. And now our hearts can forever sing the song of verses 10 and 11. Put 10 and 11 on the screen. We will sing this song for the rest of eternity. 10,000 years from now, you and I will be gathered similarly to where we are right now and we'll be singing these words. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone of all things of God's eternal kingdom the one that we rejected 
has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this. And it is marvelous in our eyes.